I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. numbers i am your host ryan blackburn at nba blackburn on twitter it is tuesday morning as we get into some more stats for this week really excited to bring you guys a lot of interesting stats today that i have compiled over the last couple of days i've released some stuff on twitter that was a general preview basically of what this podcast is going to look like this one is going to be focusing mostly on evaluating the rotation where the Nuggets are at with their rotation, how things are going to go from a lineup perspective, not necessarily from an individual perspective on how everybody is shooting at a specific point, but more how things are coming together, more how certain lineups are working, certain lineups are not. And it's mostly going to be positive because this season has been great one for the Nuggets. The Nuggets are 27 and 12. Hard to really argue with that. Uh, And I've got a lot of things that kind of reflect that, including some positive stuff on Michael Porter Jr., so stick around. The first segment of this podcast is going to be five statistical tidbits that I have compiled, while the second segment is going to be more focused on lineup-specific data. So if you're looking for which lineups work, then skip to that next segment. All good. If you're looking for... Just some of the interesting things that I've found over the past couple of days that I think are really indicative of where the Nuggets are at as a team, then stick around for this segment and listen all the way through. But thank you for tuning into the Denver Stiffs Podcast Network. We have been having a great time of uploading these daily podcasts for you. I think we've been pretty consistent in terms of getting a podcast up at least four of the five days, mostly... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Sometimes Jenna Garcia is on SoundCloud. Don't know if she's going to have a podcast up tomorrow. She has run into a, she wish she went to the ER, um, which was pretty, pretty tough. And we're all thinking about her, but uh, she probably won't have a podcast up tomorrow, but that's all right. We've got some good stuff going today and it should be really interesting. So without further ado, Let's get into the statistical segment. All right. Five statistical tidbits that I was really interested in and thought that other people would be interested in too in terms of being a strong team from different perspectives. The first one's going to be about Denver's winning percentage versus teams over 500. I posted this stat on Twitter and thought it was really interesting. Teams don't generally do well against other teams above 500. It's very rare for a team to be as competent as the Nuggets are against teams above 500. That means that they are really playing up to their competition and succeeding when they get into that chance, when they get into that position where they have something to prove. 
sometimes they haven't done very well. And the Los Angeles Lakers game on December 3rd comes to mind. The Houston Rockets game that they played uh, earlier this month, or was it last month? I can't remember, but this stat I think is really interesting and I think really indicative of where Denver is as a team. So the number is 64.3%, and that is Denver's winning percentage versus teams above 500. The only team that can say that they match that is the Milwaukee Bucks, who also have a 64.3 winning percentage. That's a really big deal. It What that really says to me is that the Nuggets are in this tier of title contenders. There is no separation. The Bucks are the team that's probably separated themselves the best because they've won against teams above 500 and teams against below 500. The Lakers are doing really well too, and, and they also appear on this list. I believe they are fourth. Let me check that and confirm. Yes, they are fourth. They are 61.1%. That's a really good number too. Only only eight teams appeared above 500, or 500 or above. Those teams in order are the Milwaukee Bucks, the Denver Nuggets, the Miami Heat, the Lakers, the Rockets, the Clippers, the Celtics, and the Sixers. Those are basically all of the teams that you can see winning a title, except for maybe the Heat and maybe the Nuggets. It just kind of depends on your perspective on their team on that roster. The Bucks are great. Obviously, they have Giannis. They are going to get those. They're going to get those wins because so many, so many teams, including teams that are above 500, even the best in the league, do not have a player that can match up with them. The same is true for Nikola Jokic. Very few teams have a guy that can match up with him both on the perimeter, where he's both becoming an elite shooter and passing from the top of the key, and as a low post scorer and passer where he is bullying people down on the block, being a consistent force down there, especially lately. That's been really, really important. Um when you li- when you listen to that list again, the Bucks, the Nuggets, the Heat, the Lakers, the Rockets, the Clippers, Celtics, and Sixers, four East teams, four West teams, it would not surprise me if those four teams in each conference comprise the top four teams in that conference. So keep in mind that when you're thinking about whether the Nuggets are really, whether whether you should be concerned about whether they're losing to below 500 teams. It's a big deal in terms of seeding, but not necessarily in terms of the actual power level that that team can provide. So interesting stuff there. And one more tidbit there. A lot of people, when they talk about evaluating Denver, are going to use their net rating. With this particular statistic, I don't think that Denver's overall net rating makes a lot of sense. They rank 12th in the NBA right now in terms of net rating. That's because they suck against below 500 teams. That's because they've they've given up a lot of those leads. Uh, when they have a lead against a good team or even an average team, a lot of times they'll give it up and then they'll they'll win it at the end. And so some of those games that they that they should be winning by 20, they're only winning by 10. So that knocks down the net rating every single time they do that. So I am not worried about Denver at all. There are a lot of things to be worried about in terms of what happens when they get to the second round of the playoffs, what happens when they get to the Western Conference Finals, or if they can get that far. Not really worried about their first round, especially if they can get a top four seed. I think they are better 
than a lot of those teams, including the Jazz, including the Mavericks, and including anybody like the Thunder or the Grizzlies or whoever gets the eight seed. So be less worried about that. I won't take as much time on these secondary points as that particular one, but number two is the plus-minus leader of the Nuggets for the last 10 games is Michael Porter Jr. At plus 25, the Nuggets have not been particularly great over the last 10 games. They're only 6-4, and four, so kind of in line with what you would expect from them, maybe one game less. Michael Porter Jr. is leading them by uh, plus 25, Next highest is Jamal Murray at plus 13 in that span. And Michael Porter has only done that in 153 minutes. That is a great sign. That's a great sign that he's really coming together and, and starting to figure things out. And that the Nuggets are figuring out how to play with him, even when he's not playing well or he's not helping the defense at all. or Because sometimes he runs around with like a chicken with his head cut off. And that that's really that's really tough when you're trying to put together a cohesive five-man unit on both ends of the floor. But as Adam Marius likes to say, he is an A-plus or top elite percentile in terms of the individual skills on offense and some on defense too. Like he does a decent job of mirroring of mirroring people in man-on-man. He made a great block on Lou Williams on Monday night or Sunday night, excuse me. So he's he's done some impressive things. When I tweeted out that stat yesterday, it kind of blew up. And a lot of people responded by saying, oh, Michael Malone's an idiot. Why isn't he playing him more? Play Michael Porter Jr. more. Well, that really wasn't my takeaway from this exercise. And while I think he should play more too, I don't think it says anything about Malone as a coach. In anything, if anything, I think it actually says a lot of positive things about Malone that as a rookie, Michael Porter Jr. is contributing positive things, that he's contributing to a positive unit. A lot of that is because Malone is putting him in a great position to win, putting him in a great position to succeed where he is scoring really well. He's calling a play, an isolation play for him every few possessions when he's out there, and Porter has been delivering more often than not. It's been it's been good to see. Um, Malone has also played him more at the power forward position, over the last few games, ever since Millsap started having his injury issues. And I think that's important. But earlier this year, when Malone tried to play Porter at power forward, he immediately benched him because Porter just had no idea what to do and where he was supposed to be and which plays he was supposed to run, where he was supposed to stand on the court. How are you supposed to play a dude when he doesn't know where the where to stand? That's a That's a pretty general thing. That whether you're playing sports, whether you're playing checkers, whether you're uh, cleaning, like if you don't know how to do it, it's kind of hard to do it. It's hard to do it well, whether you're like solving a math problem, like if you don't have like he has all the tools to solve the math problem. But if he doesn't know how to write down the equation or put the put the pieces in the proper place, then. What are you supposed to do? Like how in any case, he has done a really good job, Porter and Malone. They've done a great job of coming together on this. And in a time where the Nuggets needed somebody to step up in the wake of the Paul Millsap injury, 
it has been Michael Porter Jr. And it hasn't always been great. He got benched in the Cavs game because he was awful. But he comes back the next day. Michael Malone gives him an opportunity against the Los Angeles Clippers. And he delivers. He gives them some great minutes. And that was that was not a guarantee. But in a series against the Clippers, when you need somebody who can just get an isolation bucket every now and then because Patrick Beverly's giving it to Jamal Murray and defending him like a hoss. And you've got Paul George defending Will Barton and Kawhi Leonard on Gary Harris. Those are some pretty elite defenders. And if you're in that position, maybe Michael Porter Jr. is the guy who has a big on him. Or he's got Mo Harkless on him. And when you're in that position, sometimes you need a guy to get a bucket. And he can do that. He has proven that, and it's a really good wrinkle at power forward that he's been able to do that. So pretty impressed with what I've seen from him so far. I do think that now Porter is succeeding. They can open up the box a little bit more with him. They can play him just a little bit more and play him through some of these mistakes, but only because he showed that ceiling. He showed that he can be a positive over the last 10 games. They haven't called a lot of plays for him. They only have the the one, really, where he, he sets a screen for Monte Morris and then receives the ball for an isolation. He's been good at that, and they should continue to do that. Now maybe they might work in an extra play in there every now and then. So we will see what happens. Been happy to see that he's played with Jokic as well. Also, he's played in 18 straight games. I don't know about you, but I did not think that Michael Malone would be able to do that. That's a massive accomplishment and a big kudos to Michael Malone for being able to survive that. Like, the Nuggets have not been perfect over these last 18, but the next stat that I have is they are 13-4 and four over the last 17. So I'm, I, I would assume that they're 13-5 and five over their last 18. It's the last month's worth of games, basically. The wins have included... The Thunder, the Lakers, the Pacers, the Mavericks, and the Clippers. Some really great teams. Some some playoff caliber teams. I think all of those teams are going to be in the playoffs. Most of them are going to have a top five seed. Maybe the Mavericks and the Thunder are the six and the seven. But other than that, all of those teams are going to be pretty good. On the flip side, Denver's four losses have been the Pelicans, the Rockets, the Wizards, and the Cavs. One of those teams is good, and that's the one that I would be concerned about if I were Nuggets fans because the Nuggets really tried to match up with the Rockets and they were blown out. <coughs> In the first Rockets game, the Nuggets kind of caught the Rockets off guard. They they did a, a weird doubling scheme and kind of doubled at random times. Because of that, Russell Westbrook took like 10 threes, missed most of them, and the Nuggets got what they needed. They, they only let them score 95 points. The Rockets had a counter for that this time, and when the Nuggets doubled off of Russell Westbrook, he immediately attacked the rim and put the rim protector in a two-for-one situation, or a, a one-on-two situation. So either Westbrook attacked all the way to the rim, or he lobbed the ball up to Clint Capella, or Isaiah Hartenstein, or whoever it was. And I think the Rockets succeeded 130, 130 in that game. So that's a that's a big deal. But the more big deal there is that or at least for some people is that Denver's losses have been to the Pelicans, Wizards and Cavs and that 
Denver should be more concerned about those. I think that's honestly hilarious. It shows exactly where Denver is as a team right now. They're young, they're extremely talented, and they're extremely unfocused. The only guy who I think is consistently locked in and carried Denver during this period and not had a really bad game has been Nikola Jokic. But the overall focus of the team is still bad. That would be my concern. Like it would, it would concern me more in this situation if they also weren't winning those tough games. But they're winning the tough games. They're they're in that situation, and they're winning games that they're probably not supposed to win against some of the top teams, and losing games that they are supposed to win against the bottom ones. So, a win is a win. But I think the above five hundred ones mean a little bit more in this case. Number four, when Nikola Jokic is on the floor and Mason Plumley and Jeremy Grant are off, the Nuggets have a plus 11.5 net rating in 778 minutes. So those lineups can include one of two scenarios where Paul Millsap is his running mate and they've done a really good job in those situations. Paul Millsap has been great as Nikola Jokic's partner in crime. I think that net rating is around plus 12. In addition, the Nuggets have also been in situations where they have used a stretch four. One of those stretch fours, Michael Porter Jr. Wancho has also played with Jokic, and he has played really well in those situations. I think it's also interesting that with Mason Plumlee on and Nikola Jokic and Jeremy Grant off, the Nuggets have a plus 12.6 net rating in 117 minutes. That also includes uh, Paul Millsap, of course. So some of those Millsap Plumlee lineups are there. But a lot of those minutes are with a stretch four. And so in my opinion, it's clear that the Nuggets have been best when they've had a stretch four, a true stretch four on the court. I think it's also necessary with the bench because the Nuggets have tried so many different configurations with Grant and Plumlee, but Grant isn't a true stretch four. He is, I think he's a wing that the opposing team doesn't necessarily treat as a wing shooter. They treat him as a guy and say, okay, we can't let you drive on us, but we'll let you shoot. And he has shot and Some of those shots have gone in, and I think he's done a pretty decent job of shooting the three overall. But teams just don't respect that jumper in the same way that they would uh, Michael Porter Jr. or Juancho Hernan Gomez even. like Those guys have so much more gravity because they have this reputation as good shooters. And the paint collapsing, and has especially on the bench lineups, has really impacted Denver from that perspective. I'm surprised that Grant hasn't been used more in the short corner or the corner because I think he's actually pretty good there. Even in the corner where he's not shooting a great percentage, and I'll get to that later, but the Nuggets have tried Wancho and Porter as the bench force in various lineups where maybe it's Porter is the four and and Malik Beasley is the three or it's Wancho is the three, but they've worked out decently well. It's unclear if those lineups are playoff ready if Denver will be in a position where they need to go to those lineups and can trust that lineup in a playoff situation. But it's better than not having it. And I think there's there's a reason why the Nuggets are interested or potentially interested in Davis Bertans because 
if they don't believe that Michael Porter Jr. is ready, and or at least don't want to have to trust him in those situations, same thing with Wancho, then maybe the best thing for them is to go get a guy like Davis Bertans, where you definitely trust that dude to hit his threes. You definitely trust that dude, even in a playoff series, to kind of bend the defense to his will. That's a big deal. If they get into those situations where the Monte Morris Mason Plumlee pick and roll needs a little bit more space. In the previous matchups and in, in last year's playoffs, the Nuggets would use Tory Craig or Paul Millsap as the bench four when Nikola Jokic was off the floor. And neither of those guys are they they don't have the same gravity that Michael Porter Jr. or Wancho have. Now, a match of that gravity, but multiplied by three, then you've got Davis Bertans, and you've got, like, the opposing team cannot let him, they cannot let him go, because he's going to hit 45% of his threes, and when you hit that high of a percentage, you could change a game. You could absolutely win a playoff game. So, if Porter can get to that place, then Denver may not need to trade for anybody at the trade deadline, but if he can't, then we'll see. That's why these next few weeks are so important for Denver. They need to answer some questions, and then they need to talk to some teams. And if they have the right conversation and things fall into place, then they'll make a deal probably. It would not surprise me if they acquired Davis Bertans at the deadline. All right, final thing. I briefly mentioned corner threes. Eight of Denver's 12 players play ro- that play rotation minutes have also shot 40% or better from the corner three. That's a really good number. And the only four who haven't are Mason Plumlee, who doesn't really shoot threes, of course, and then Jamal Murray, Jeremy Grant, and Torrey Craig. You kind of expect that with Craig. Though he has hit some threes lately, I think teams are just going to have to live with that. They don't, they, like, if, if, you, beat, if you get beat by Torrey Craig in a playoff series looking at you, San Antonio, then those guys just got to tip their cap because if they're they're going to live with Torrey Craig hitting those threes and not Nikola Jokic or Will Barton or Gary Harris or guys like that. Jeremy Grant needs to be better as a three-point shooter, I think, especially from those corners, and they need to use him there a little bit more. It's going to free up more space, and I will live on that sword my entire life because... I think that Nikola Jokic is really good with a stretch four. Sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. But whatever the case, that guy has to really shoot. So it's good. It's good that Denver shoots a pretty high percentage from the corners. They're actually ranked fifth in corner three-point percentage. That's a really good number. Uh, if If you said that to Nuggets fans, they would be a little bit flummoxed because the Nuggets aren't necessarily a great shooting team. They've gone through these great slumps, and I'll tell you why. Why it doesn't feel like the Nuggets are a great three-point shooting team, it's because they don't take a lot of corner threes. The Nuggets are ranked 24th in total three-point attempts from the corner. They're really bad from the right corner, a little bit better from the left corner because Nikola Jokic throws that pass, Jamal Murray is always cutting that direction and then can kick it out to the corner that way. They're really good at, or not really good, they're they're adequate at hitting the left corner. Not so great at hitting the right. But 
the, the point here is that they don't shoot enough of those. If you're going to be a good offense, especially in the playoffs, you have to have guys who can hit threes from the corners. If they can't do that or they're unwilling to do that, then that's going to be an issue. Um, looking at Michael Porter Jr.'s number specifically, let me look at that because I think that that's important. Um, didn't have that pulled up, had the NBA.com numbers pulled up, but in terms of Michael Porter Jr. shooting from the three-point corner, he is shooting 40% on the dot. So I think that's a really big swing point for Denver because if he is shooting well from the corner going into the playoffs, I think he'll actually play more than people think. I think he'll be a good opportunity to space the floor for everybody else. If he doesn't play, if they don't have that spacing from the corner, the Nuggets are going to be in a position where they're going to rely on Jamal Murray pull-ups and Nikola Jokic post-ups and and some really tough offense. Some some a lot of dribbling, a lot of self-creation. Having guys that can kick it out and space the floor and make the right read and and then hit that equally wonderful shot to a layup in the corner. If you have a guy there that can hit it, that's going to do so much for Denver's offense. So I'm looking forward to seeing if they can make that happen. Went long on this segment, so when we come back, I'm going to get into that lineup data. I think it's really important. I think there are some definite tendencies that I would like to see going forward based off of the data so far. So I will see you guys when we come back. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. we're back nuggets numbers here ryan blackburn getting into some lineup specific data because i think these are really indicative of where denver is at as a team right now and where there are some some opportunities for them to keep going forward to keep making things work so michael malone has talked about trying to evaluate denver's lineups and who he wants to put together in terms of trios in terms of three guys that can really anchor the lineup, and then having a couple of role players around them. So I think that's smart. I think where he really comes into that and and the one that he really thinks about most in terms of Denver's starting lineup is Jamal Murray, Paul Millsap, Nikola Jokic. That's who he thinks about when he thinks about the starter group because Gary Harris and Will Barton and one of those guys is definitely coming off the floor in the first rotation. And Paul Millsap usually is as well because Jeremy Grant's coming on the floor. So I thought it'd be really interesting to look at this from a trio perspective. 
all of these trios have a minimum of 100 minutes played. I th- think that that's a, a decent benchmark because Denver uses most of their lineups, or mostly it's their starting lineup, and some of the other groupings don't have as much playing time because Porter's in in, in the lineup. Sometimes it's Wancho, sometimes it's Beasley, and things have changed. So it'll be interesting to talk about, I think. So without further ado, looking at the best net ratings for the trios, most of the lineups involve some configuration of starters. It's the the Barton-Millsap-Jokic trio, the Murray-Barton-Millsap trio, the Harris-Barton-Millsap trio. When it says Barton and Millsap, what that really says to me is the starting group, because a lot of times it's those two that are coming off the floor first. So when they're on the floor together, it usually means that Murray, Harris, and Jokic are around them. That's why the Barton-Millsap duo has the highest uh, two-man duo of any of the... uh, of any of the Nuggets, of any of the Nuggets lineups that have played. And it's actually pretty high in terms of the overall NBA. I think it's in the top 10. It's plus 13.7 per 100 possessions. So keep that in mind. So the starters are good. Everybody knows that the starters are good. I'm not telling you anything new there. That's their bread and butter. They're just awesome. So, But the thing is, they're designed to beat the uh, kind of the bottom 25 teams in the league. Usually they struggle with the top four teams just based off of some of the the intrinsic faults that they have, whether it's size on the perimeter or it's athleticism guarding guys like Anthony Davis or Giannis Antetokounmpo. So the four teams that I think they struggle with the most are the Lakers, the Clippers, the Bucks, and the Sixers, mostly due to size and athleticism, but it's hard to match up with LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George. Giannis Antetokounmpo, and then Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. So take that with a grain of salt, of course. The only trios out of the top 10 that are not entirely made of starters are these two. Monte Morris, Gary Harris, Mason Plumley. That lineup is a plus 15.6 net rating in 106 minutes. Really good number. Keep that in mind. The next one is Malik Beasley. Wancho Hernan Gomez, and Mason Plumley. That's plus 10.8 in 118 minutes. So that second one is a little bit more misleading. They're actually, in terms of raw plus minus, they're a plus 26. But that could be entirely canceled out by their trip to New York, where that lineup, that trio specifically, was, I think, a plus 28. So really, they're they're about neutral. They're about net neutral if you remove the game against one of the worst teams in the league where that team just fired their coach immediately afterwards. So I would discount that lineup a little bit. The first one, though, that's a real lineup that Denver could use. That's a real interesting lineup. The Morris, Gary Harris, Mason Plumlee lineup. It features the Morris Plumley pick and roll, which means that Nikola Jokic is off the floor. You want them to get some rest, some some recovery, and that's that's going to help in a playoff situation. With Denver looking for more ways to play Michael Porter Jr., having him on the floor, um, having him on the floor with a Jokic Murray Barton Grant lineup has allowed Harris to leave the floor early so that he can come back in and play with the second unit. That unit is Denver's most frequent Murray-Jokic-Porter unit lineup, by the way. 
That's also net neutral, so keep that in mind. But I really like this Morris-Harris-Plumley lineup, and I really think that it has a a lot of capability to keep the keep the floor to keep the the game balanced. Denver usually excels with their starters. Where they have problems most of the time is keeping that lead. So if they have a lineup that that they can go to immediately after the starting unit with the Jokic Grant Porter trio. If that is net neutral and then you immediately get into the main bench where Gary Harris is the primary bench guy. If he can help keep things going, if he can help offset the the lack of creation in the Morris Plumley pick and roll, because it's really those only those only those two guys. And Monte Morris wants to be in the mid range. Mason Plumley wants to be at the rim. Neither of those guys are like high volume three point shooters. So if Gary Harris can be out there and also create a little bit. It involves him getting his three ball right. That's a really big part of this. If he can't get the three ball right, I don't think this works long term. I don't think this works as a playoff unit. But if he gets to that point where the three-point shot is coming back, where the defense is quality with Gary Harris out there, jumping the, the passing lanes, playing with Mason Plumley, getting out and running, that's a really big deal. I think it also allows Denver to play Porter a little bit in those groups because if you've got Morris and Harris as the primary creators and then have Porter as an an occasional isolation guy, occasional spot-up guy, a cutter, it allows for those guys to take a little bit of a break in those situations where they don't have to work as hard. So I'm really intrigued by that group. I'm really intrigued by that particular rotation because I think it sets up a lot of what Denver has to do by bridging the gap between when Jokic is on the floor first versus when he comes back on the floor. so Because if you can keep that neutral, like Denver was doing last year, they're going to be in a position where they can have a bad stretch of Jokic minutes here or there. Most of the time it's going to be really, really good, but sometimes it's going to be bad, and so you need a lineup that's going to save that, that's going to keep things in check. Can't let go of the rope. Let's look at some of the best offensive lineups, excluding the the all-starter lineup, because I think that that's a, it's pretty easy to, to say, yeah, that's great, yeah, wonderful. But of course it is. Of course it's great. I am, I'm going to give you guys, I think, four lineups that I think are going to be interesting. First involves the Morris-Harris-Plumley lineup, and I want to throw out Malik Beasley and Jeremy Grant in there. I don't think you can play Porter, Grant, and Plumley together extensively. It involves too many time, too many guys crashing the rim, not a lot of floor balance. They have a 99 offensive rating within 140 minutes. That trio, that particular group, that's really bad. Poor assist to turnover ratio there. The the shooting is not good. They're not getting enough offensive rebounds to offset it. And the defense with Porter out there with Grant out there, Plumley, even though he's he's a decent defender, it, that combination of guys just hasn't really gotten it done defensively. So if you're not going to score and you're not going to defend, then I don't think there has there's a lot of place for that lineup going forward. Now, if you put Malik Beasley in there, 
instead of Porter. I think it fixes that because so much of what Beasley wants to do, he wants to sit at the three-point line and be ready to fire. He wants to come around a screen. He wants to get up and run. He will stay out of the way of the Morris Plumley pick and roll and allow them to space the floor. He has the ability to fire up threes and hit three in a, in a span of three minutes. That's a really important facet. And so if you have a guy like that that you trust, then that's great. I don't think that they're going to consistently go to that lineup because I don't know how consistently they're going to go to Beasley in general. But that's just a possible configuration that when the starters are mostly off the floor and you only have Gary Harris out there, then I like that group. I think that group has potential. The next one is any lineup with Michael Porter Jr. out there at the four and Nikola Jokic at the five. I talked briefly about how Millsap and Jokic work well, how Grant and Jokic haven't really worked well, but with Grant and Porter out there at the same time as Jokic, they've made it work. It's gotten better. It was really bad, but over these last few games, they've actually recovered really nicely. So that's a good sign because I think that that is the starting lineup of next season. It has worked well in short bursts, the Porter at power forward and Jokic at the five, particularly because you just can't stop it. You can't you can't outscore that group, especially if they have some solid scores on the perimeter as well. So, for example, Monte Morris, Jamal Murray, Will Barton, Michael Porter Jr., Nikola Jokic. There are a lot of guys to handle the ball there, a lot of creators, a lot of good shooters. Uh, you, you hope that Murray and Barton can, can hit their shots, of course, but Porter has hit his shots, Morris has hit his shots, Jokic has hit a ton of shots lately. It has a little bit of small size at the guards, but there's enough shooting to sustain things, and Porter at 6'10", if he can put things together a little bit, can actually be a pretty decent power forward. Some people think the power forward is his position of the future, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think that his main matchup advantage is as the three. But if he has a versatile forward next to him like Jeremy Grant, then maybe that works. Maybe maybe you can have Porter defend fours in those situations but operate as the three offensively. That's a good that's a good situation to be in in my opinion. Now, can that lineup defend? Can a Morris, Murray, Barton, Porter, Jokic lineup actually play defense? I don't know. That's a good question. But Paul Millsap, if he's out for a while, it's something that I think Michael Malone has to try. I think he has to put Porter in situations to win, in situations where he can succeed, and that is with a lot of space. That is with a lot of offensive focus, in my opinion. If you try to insulate a guy like that, he's going to he's going to struggle because if if he's the first option consistently, I think the teams eventually adjust to that, and unless Porter is hitting every shot in the gym, then it's it's a tough situation. Right now, he's hitting every shot in the gym, so the the opinions of the audience might be a little biased here. But if Porter's jumper is off, then it's not a really good situation. This lineup could, even if his jumper is a little off, he could still score pretty well because he's at the four. He'll be a good cutter. He'll be a good runner. And Jokic pairs well with that. So you want to see what Jokic and Porter can do when they're the 4-5. or five. 
I think that's a really important step for Denver's future too. Third lineup out of four. Morris and Plumley, but with no Grant. Like I said with Porter earlier, the stretch four I think is really important. The Morris and Plumley lineup without Grant right now has a 116.9 offensive rating in 100 minutes. They're about plus 16, so they are defending decently enough. It's, it's not perfect, but it's good, especially in the low volume that it is. That could change when you put higher volume with it, when you try it a little bit more. But if Grant is going to be starting over these next few games, if Millsap is going to be out, the stretch four is going to have to play off the bench because Grant can't play 40, 45 minutes a game. They're going to have to manage his minutes because that's just what good teams do. And so if you put Michael Porter Jr. at the four or you put Wancho at the four, it doesn't really matter. Those guys can really help space the floor for Morris and Plumlee to operate. It's the another configuration of the Morris-Harris-Plumlee lineup that I want to see is with Wancho in there or Porter in there instead of Grant. That's a really good offensive scoring lineup. Defensively, again, it's going to be an issue. It's going to be interesting to see how how well that holds up. But I'm, of course, of the opinion that you find lineups that can score and then build defense around them. The best teams in the NBA are the ones that know that they can score and then add defense after that. The Warriors built a lineup that they knew they could score with Curry and Thompson and Draymond Green. That lineup really worked. The Cavs with LeBron have obviously been a a scoring team. They've never been a defensive team with him. And so on and so forth. Title contenders, they know how to score the ball. They learn to defend. This team is learning to defend. Once they figure that out, they'll make it work. But if you lose your identity on the way, that's tough. So Denver's been in a good position offensively over the last month or so. And you like to see that. You like to see them figuring things out, especially with Jamal Murray kind of struggling. But they have to be able to sustain that when Jokic is off the floor, especially in the playoffs. This is a playoff-geared lineup where you don't know what's going to happen, but you know that Morris and Plumlee are going to have to play at some point. It's not just going to be Jeremy Grant at the five, and there's no other backup point guard. Like, Jamal Murray is eventually going to have to come off the floor, and there's no other guy to really step in for him unless they want to go without a point guard. I don't think that that's something that they will do, that they'll trust. So Morris and Plumlee are going to be out there. You have to find a way to score with those lineups. So if the stretch four is not going to be Porter, (coughs) what about Davis Bertans? What about a guy that they could trade for? This is one of the reasons why I think when you get into a playoff situation, you may have to do some interesting stuff. If you think that your starters are going to play and you think that Morris, Grant, and Plumlee are going to play, if you're unsure about Porter, you probably trade for Davis Bertans. That's my opinion. He's a rental. You don't have to bring him back. If you trust Porter long-term, then maybe the best thing to do is just let Porter play in those situations. But I am concerned that Denver will not play Porter and then struggle offensively because they don't have the right personnel. So 
you either get the right personnel or you find ways to work around it. And the Grant Plumlee lineup is not going to score enough. you got to figure out a way to do it. Last lineup, the highest two-man net rating for Nikola Jokic. The other player to match his net rating is Mason Plumlee. When those two are on the floor, they have a net rating of plus 30 right now. It is insane. They get better every year. They figure it out. They know how to play together. They know what their roles are. Nikola Jokic is the guy, and then Mason Plumlee plays off of him. Jokic finds Plumlee on the on the passes. Plumlee gets around the rim. Plumlee defends a little bit more, while Jokic is, is given a little bit more of a reprieve. I like that lineup in certain situations, and I really want to see it against the Lakers. I don't think we saw it in either of the two games against the Lakers, but I still want to see it. I want to see what they can do when Paul Millsap is off the floor. If he has to rest, I don't think that Grant can defend Anthony Davis. I think that Grant can defend LeBron, or at least give a facsimile of defense against LeBron that anybody else could give. But I want to see what Mason Plumlee can do as the primary defender on Anthony Davis when Jokic is also on the floor. Because the Nuggets can score with those two on the floor. They know how to play together. Plumlee can. He he works his way around the rim, and Jokic is the guy who... He'll be in the post. He'll be at the top of the key. He'll make things work. I'm really, I'm really hopeful that they try that because I think that that could be a real wrinkle that could win them a playoff game, that could win them a playoff series, whether it's against the, it's against them, whether it's against the Rockets, I guess, where you put Jokic on PJ Tucker. Uh, I'm interested in seeing how it goes. So that's going to do it for me here. Nuggets numbers. I know this was a, a little bit of a weird episode where I focused on some of the nitty gritty stuff. Let me know what else you want to see. Let me know. Let me know what stats you're interested in. What things you want to hear from me, because we are getting kind of at the halfway point of the regular season, and I am interested to see how this goes. I'm interested to see how the fans respond. How they what they want to hear from me. What they want to hear about, because I'll pull pretty much any information that you want me to pull and talk about it on air. It doesn't it doesn't matter to me. Whatever you whatever you find interesting, whatever you want to hear about, whether it's more Michael Porter Jr. stuff, whether it's why Jamal Murray struggling, whether it's injury related stuff and and how Denver can circumvent that, whether it's more Nikola Jokic love, I'll talk about whatever you want to hear. This is Ryan Blackburn for Nuggets Numbers signing off. I will see you guys next week. <laughs>